Hello. Welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very honored and uh, pleased to share the conversation I had with Samuel Moyne. Samuel is the Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University. He has a doctorate in modern European history from University of California in Berkeley. He also has a law degree from Harvard. He has previously been the Henry Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School. He has also uh, been in Columbia's University History Department. And much of his work is on constitutional law, um, Vietnam War, uh, 20th century politics. He is also a fellow at the new Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, he's written everywhere. <laughs> he's written for The Atlantic, Boston Review, Chronicle of Higher Education, The Nation, The New Republic, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Again, he's written everywhere. <laughs> and he has also uh, received many fellowships, American Council of Learned Societies. Um, he's a Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. He's a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, many, many places. He is also just recently named one of the world's top thinkers for 2024 from Prospect Magazine. Uh, so I believe it's 25 people from around the world uh, chosen uh, by the magazine for work that informs people about many things of global importance, such as you know climate change, economics, geopolitics, etc. And uh, he is in that list, um, probably mostly for obviously his work that he's been doing, but for his newest book, which is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War, Intellectuals, and the Making of Our Times, which has been uh, widely acclaimed. And that is the book that we talk about in this conversation. Uh, we start by defining liberalism, what that is, what does that term mean anymore? We talk about what is Cold War liberalism and how it actually abandons liberal principles. We talk about lessons from the Cold War liberals uh, for liberals today. Uh, we talk about the rise of neoliberalism and neoconservatives. And then much as he does in the book, these are sort of kind of case studies that he does. He looks at uh, different people and tries to illustrate different uh, concepts, which is great. Uh, kind of the, the main uh, character, if you will, she's got her own chapter and then kind of pops up in all the other chapters, is the work of Judith Sklar. So we talk about her, talk about the themes of negativism coming out uh, from this kind of Cold War liberalism because of World War II. We talk about romanticism for Sklar and Isaiah Berlin, Karl Popper and historism. We talk about Hannah Arndt on liberalism. We talk about Trilling and Freud and Cold War liberalism. And then we end with talking about the future of liberalism and where does that lie? His book is fantastic. I cannot uh, recommend it uh, more highly than maybe other people have. Everyone's kind of really uh, uh, liked the book a lot. And I really appreciated this conversation. Uh, it was um, very concise, very to the point. He's such a good thinker. Obviously, he's an exceptional writer. And really talking about how do we want to have liberalism for the future by learning from things in the past, not repeating the same mistakes, and really pushing for um, creating, for making new things, for having, you know, kinds of ways that, you know, there could be prosperity for everyone. Um, how do we not just be, you know, stuck in certain ways, or we only take, you know, uh, the compromise all the time? How do we innovate? How do we have good ideas? Um, and, and his book is spectacular for for trying to understand where we've come from 
don't repeat the same mistakes and where where we can go uh, by using some of these character uh, treatments that he does in the book. So it's I highly recommend it. I highly recommend everyone buying his book. And um, as always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Also find the podcast on uh, YouTube. So get to those places, follow, subscribe, share, contribute, um, and uh, go get his book. And uh, now I bring you Samuel Moyne. I am here with Samuel Moyne. Uh, Samuel, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to talking with you and, and talking with you about your book. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's a book I've been hearing a lot about, and I've been seeing people review it and talk about it and post about it. And um, I was I was able to also read it, and uh, it's it's great. So I'm I'm I can't be a book more appropriate for our times. So I'm I'm excited to talk with you about it. Uh, before we do. Just tell listeners uh, briefly who you are, uh, professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to. Uh, I'm Samuel Moyne. Most people call me Sam. I teach law and history at Yale University, where I've been for six or seven years. Been teaching college uh, for you know a bit more than twenty. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow! And um, this isn't your first book, I'm assuming. No, no, I've written a few, but you know, this, each one is different Mm -hmm. and unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess when we get into kind of the definition of things, just briefly, what, uh, what inspired you to write this one? Was this something you've been chewing on for a while or, you know, more recently something you wanted to to say? I mean, you you tackle some really interesting topics. So what was the kind of motivation here? So I, I think there are a few, um, you know, one was just that, I didn't think there was kind of a book about this specific era in the history of liberalism, which is is a field that has kind of exploded in recent years. A lot of people have returned to the 19th century, um, but I thought, you know, something big happened in the middle of the 20th. Mm. And then I also was responding to not so much the election of Donald Trump, but more like how people responded to it, Mm -hmm. which struck me to be uh, as being sort of, you know, uh, reflecting the endurance of this, you know, new kind of liberalism that comes about in the middle of the 20th century. And I saw, so I thought doing the history could be relevant in a way to our own times. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure we'll, talk a little bit about definitions. I, I typically hate uh, arguments about definitions because everyone has a different yeah. one, but just kind of to put the, uh, set the table, if you will. Um, so how do you, <laughs> this is kind of become, as you're saying, a, more of a, a thing that people talk about, but how do you typically define liberalism? Um, I guess kind of in the uh, most true sense of the word. And then if you want to talk about how sure. maybe people use it now, which might be different, but how do you usually define liberalism? Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to give a definition like that is kind of static mm. because like many things, Christianity, you know, America, it's a tradition and it, it changes. It's like, how do you define America? Well, that would depend on when you stop the camera. Mm. And so a lot of us have been 
you know, at least trying to stay honest to when people use words. Mm. And so like, you know, instead of saying the first liberals were in ancient Greece or the middle ages, we found that they, they first emerge after the French revolution mm -hmm. in the United States. The, no one really talks about liberalism until after world war one, when the new Republic magazine is founded. Mm -hmm. And so by that point, it means something like what most Americans mean by it um, in this country, which is like progressivism, the Democratic Party um, in the era, especially of Franklin Roosevelt. Mm. But, you know, that was just American liberalism. My book is about a kind of broader tradition that starts in the 19th century and is is about like, you know, um, like freedom and government's relationship to it uh, and how we should live together, it tends to be opposed to conservatism. Mm. Um, and so it's sort of uh, like the, the, it emerges as a way of like staying true to the French Revolution um, while keeping the freedom and equality that revolution promised like in stable form since in the French revolution, it didn't last. And then liberals are kind of all over the map about how exactly you do, do so. Hmm. So we have this kind of understanding of it. And yet you make the argument in the book that cold war liberalism basically, well, you, if you want to say it so strongly as abandons all of these things <laughs> or goes right. in another direction. So Kind of just chat about that broadly and and why what what happened there well, so you know along with the the commitment to freedom and government that would would you know provide it, I think um, the the earlier kinds of liberals really thought that um, that there was a right way for people to live. And you find that in authors like John Stuart Mill in England or Alexis de Tocqueville in France, although he was a visitor to the United States very famously. Mm -hmm. And they both say, you know, the point of life that liberals are bringing to kind of as many people as they can is kind of creativity and self-realization. Um, and then they also believed, those two and many others, that you know, liberals had to believe in progress, not inevitable progress, but they had to like offer a bright future um, in which more and more people would become more and more free. And basically, I argue that liberals in the middle of the 20th century gave up on those two things yeah. for the main reason that they thought the Soviets, um, whom the Cold War liberals opposed, were kind of stealing their thunder. You know, the Soviets said, we, we will make people free. We will provide the radiant future for humanity. And liberals in response kind of said, okay, you take those things. We, we now think that, you know, politics is dangerous and we, liberalism needs to be about facing threats, yeah. big threats like the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and so like the whole spirit of liberalism changes, it's not optimistic, but tragic. And it's, 
not about like realizing freedom so much as like um, making sure that liberalism doesn't fall to its enemies. Now, the the pushback here is, yes, reason, uh, you know, universal freedom, equality. These are less, I guess you could say, emphasized. But wouldn't the, the counter be, well, look, I mean, you had a lot of big players in the world at the time. You had a lot of threats. You had a lot of things. Somebody needed to step up to the plate. We need to just sure. put the emphasis there for now. What, sure. What's wrong with that? Why, why, why is there problems, I guess, with that? Right. Well, I, so first, I mean, the earlier liberals, it's not like they didn't know that they had enemies or that there were, were threats to free societies, mm. but they didn't define liberalism as being most importantly about kind of patrolling you know, for, for these threats and, and facing them down. Um, and then, you know, I guess I would say, of course, I mean, someone could argue that because of the fearful threats in the middle of the 20th century, it made sense to redefine liberalism as, you know, in, in the way that I described. And, I, I I do think it made sense because those people lived through hell. Mm-hmm. They saw the Weimar Republic mm-hmm. in Germany collapse and National Socialism arise on its ruins. They did see, you know, our ally, the Soviet Union, converted into an enemy and a big global competition over the meaning of freedom and equality open up. Mm-hmm. And that was no doubt scary. Um, but it wasn't. I don't think necessary to give up the older mm. ideas about liberalism to face those threats. And even worse, I think that the threat orientation version of liberalism ended up kind of producing its own problems. Mm. Um, and that's what I argue in the book, that if you say like states are dangerous, freedom has to be protected from states. Well, what about like the high taxation of the very era the Cold War liberals were living in or the welfarist redistribution Mm -hmm. that they probably believed in but never justified. Well, those went away and Cold War liberals gave us no tools Mm. for keeping them around. And then, you know, we see whether it's abroad or at home, this endless series of threats where it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you face externally and say liberalism has to be defended against its enemies, you'll find them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You might even create them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, terror, Muslims, terrorists, white nationalists, like it's like endless waves. And you begin to think, well, how did liberalism deserve all these enemies? Why are Americans giving up on liberalism and voting uh, for white nationalism in the first place. Maybe it's kind of the mistakes of liberals and not staying true to their tradition. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I want to suggest. Mm. Let me let me just, I want to come back to that, but just uh, a thought popped into my head. It's a little bit more yep. current, so f- forgive me. I, I, you don't tackle this in the book, but I'm just curious if there's a connection. What do you think about the kind of current stance with Russia and Ukraine at the moment? Uh, I don't, I don't like doing a lot of like front page news kinds of things, but it feels like there's somewhat of a, of a linking point here. 
What do you think totally, about totally those, those lessons there from Cold War liberals for how, you know, liberals are, have their stance or their attitude towards that now? Conservatives are, you know, kind of mixed on that. What, what is your, what do you, we see as a compare contrast of sorts? So the first thing I'd say is that uh, the Ukraine war after people were kind of tired of American war making, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which led to the Afghan withdrawal. Maybe even people were rethinking American militarism for a bit. Mm-hmm. It, it gave a new lease on life to the idea that America's role in the world is to oppose tyrannical enemies, mm. uh, including through spending lots of money yep. uh, of our own money f- for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't think that's necessarily bad um, because Putin is a tyrant mm-hmm. and he did an evil thing. Mm-hmm in invading and there's like a difficult question about well can can we beat him uh can we expel him from ukraine no matter how much weaponry we send so i'm i'm kind of not sure about the ukraine war less because i think it was a bad idea than because it seems to have been stalemated from its earliest Mm -hmm. days and we have to like figure out what to do uh in a stalemated, endless war. Mm. Um, but the, 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 the trouble, I think, is that maybe those who are within the framework of Cold War liberal, li- liberalism don't want to face that reality mm. because they say, like, our role is to keep freedom from extinction by tyranny. And that means, does that mean, you know, funding weaponry in the Ukraine till the end of time, if, if it turns out, you know, we can't push Russia back to the 20, you know, 20 or 2014 borders. Um, if that's true, then cold war liberalism is a recipe for endless war. And I think we ought to, you know, kind of face that forthrightly. Mm, Yeah. You mentioned that cold war liberalism gave rise to what we saw in the 70s and 80s, I think, of uh, in early 90s, of this neoliberal, neoconservatism. How do you find the linkage there? Because, you know, many people have said many things about politicians we right. know, you know, Bill Clinton or, you know, even people, Kamala Harris. And people have, like, really put that kind of, like, oh, it's just a neoliberal. They're just neoconservatives. Um, yep. How do you think we got from, what's the linkage there? So it's complex and, and different in the two cases of these two more or less different things, uh, neoliberalism and neoconservatism. So basically, I argue that, you know, in the 1940s, when there were already neoliberals like Friedrich Hayek, mm-hmm. um, Cold War liberals didn't join forces exactly with neoliberals, but they overlapped with them a lot in saying the main problem in politics is the expanding state that could extinguish freedom. Mm. Uh, And as I said, Cold War liberals themselves may have disagreed with neoliberals and supported a welfare state, but they never said so. Mm. And they never argued for it. And what that meant is that when Hayek's heirs like Milton Friedman got lots of power and had a breakthrough in the 1970s and 80s with the election of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, 
Cold War liberalism really didn't have a response. Hmm. It didn't leave us with a tradition of defending hmm. an alternative to neoliberalism. So it wasn't the same, but in a sense, it, 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 it didn't provide the right answers that we would have needed to avoid neoliberalism and still need. Hmm. Now, in neoconservatism, one of my chapters is about one of its founders named Gertrude Himmelfarb. Mm-hmm. And I make a couple of you know, arguments about her. I basically want to show that she was a Cold War liberal first before she morphed into a neoconservative. Mm. And then the point is that this transformation of liberalism has a lot to do with the coming of neoconservatism because it's like a station on the way mm. or a stepping stone or you know, part of the, the road to neoconservatism, not inevitably, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but Himmelfarb, who was married to Irving Kristol, the kind of most famous neoconservative sage and the mother of William Kristol, still a really important neoconservative, kind of trod that path. Mm. Uh, and so I think that um, she she's helpful because she um, helps us kind of root neoconservatism, at least some of its sources in the Cold War liberal prequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in the book, you you kind of march us through these various characters to kind of illustrate your points. You mentioned one of them here, uh, but kind of your, if you will, your your muse throughout the book is she's kind of, she gets, she gets her own chapter yeah. and she's in all of the chapters of sorts is uh, Judith uh, Schlar. Am I saying this right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So maybe just tell us briefly about her, but more specifically, what was it about her thinking and her writing that was so uh, illustrative of the point you were trying to make about Cold War liberalism? Yeah. So she's probably the least known of the, you know, six characters that I take up. That's what the book is, just a series of character studies. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a Harvard, you know, professor of, of government. And basically, I use her because she, those who know her associate her with a kind of defense of Cold War liberalism that she wrote uh, the last year of the Cold War. It's a brilliant essay called The Liberalism of Fear, where she says, you know, liberalism should be oriented to threats and, you know, especially kind of tyrannical government. Um, And what I show is that in her youth, she was against Cold War liberalism. And in a way, she was already her own best critic Mm. because she was very upset about the way in which liberalism was being transformed in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. And so I thought that was a neat trick to kind of show Mm. that like one of the leading Cold War liberals, in a sense, had already refuted her own position and, uh, I think she says some really powerful things, including that Cold War liberalism is very close to neoliberalism mm. already in the 1940s. Mm. And I think she shows some really interesting reasons for thinking that to be the case. Now, she has these views on the Enlightenment. So maybe you can tell us what, yeah. what her views are kind of at different stages of her thought or whatever, but yeah. how are they relevant yeah. then and, and how they're still relevant today if, if they are? So, you know, she starts uh, her first book, which is called After Utopia, published in the later 50s, by sort of saying 
liberalism, you know, was born out of something called the Enlightenment, uh, but it's it's now abandoning the Enlightenment. Uh, and she defines the Enlightenment as kind of the project, you know, we associate it with eight, the 18th century um, when you had figures like Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and so on. And she associates the Enlightenment uh, with the, the idea that, you know, human beings can like be free on their own. You know, they're throwing off like religion and political authority in order to, in a sense, live their own lives and define the terms of their own lives. And she then sees liberals in the 19th century, the first ones who call themselves that, inheriting the Enlightenment uh, mission. And so it's of great concern to her to see that in the 20th century, Cold War liberals are, in a sense, relinquishing that Enlightenment kind of inspiration for, for liberalism. And she wondered if it was leading them to the point of, in a sense, abandoning liberalism itself. Do you think that there was something about her where it was, you talk about this, this kind of uh, outlook of sorts of the sense of hopelessness and pessimism. Again, I'm wondering if there's this idea of, you know, people being a, a product of their times. I mean, if you think about, you know, the forties and the fifties, I mean, it was dark times. I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, there was, you know, you had the cold war, but even before that you had world war two, you had Nazi Germany, you had all these things going on the depression. Okay. How, how much of that, those themes of, of negativism or things like that are coming out based on the product of the time you're in? Well, a lot, but on the other hand, I think it was a time that was incredibly exciting for a lot of people. If you just go back a few years, you know, there's the Great Depression and there's Franklin Roosevelt who responds to it in the United States. And he's not a Cold War liberal. I mean, he fights enemies when necessary, like he helps put Adolf Hitler down. But, you know, mainly he wants to reinvent the American dream. Mm. Uh, and people come out of World War II across the Atlantic with the idea that, they can make new claims on their governments and that their governments should make new promises to them. You know, it's from this period when not in our country, but in across Western Europe, you get, you know, state funded healthcare uh, and a, a new kind of cradle to grave welfare state. And that was, you know, something that, actually earlier liberals had long dreamed of and world war ii as dark as it was provided an occasion you know for for making it real yeah. and then there was international governance i mean world war ii you know was only the latest war in a history of war that went all the way back yeah. and yet the united nations was found, yeah. which was supposed to be in the spirit of this optimism that the scourge of war, which is like the first phrase in the United Nations Charter in 1945, could finally be banished mm. and people believed it. Mm. So was it a dark time or was it a time in which pivoting beyond darkness, people like Roosevelt, you know, imagined a bright future that liberals would provide and not only in the United States, but for the whole world. Mm. That's a good reframe. <laughs> I like it. 
So you also mentioned romanticism um, with yeah. her thought and then Isaiah Berlin as well. And, and you talk about their relationship yeah. and things like that. How, maybe tell us how each of them thought about romanticism and the importance it played in their thought, but then also where they have some of their differences as well. So, you know, when I talked earlier about the, uh, the original liberal idea that, you know, our, our purpose in life is free self-creation, it's something they get out of the romantic movement, which we associate with artistry and love and things like mm -hmm. this. But it was an essential kind of contributor to the origins of liberalism because you know, previously politics had not registered the importance that, you know, I think everyone today assigns to their own individual lives and the, the, the idea that they have the chance to make their own lives special. Mm. And liberals signed up to provide that opportunity to everyone. It wasn't just about providing a welfare state at the beginning, it was about making a kind of creative self definition for every person, you know, individually or in groups possible. And so when I talk about uh, Isaiah Berlin, I, I kind of say that while he was a cold war liberal, the most famous one in defining freedom in terms of absence of interference by the state. Deep down, he really understood the claims of romanticism uh, that mattered so much to, you know, I would argue, you know, billions around the world because through, you know, films and music, like everyone around the world practically adopts this aspiration for themselves at this point. And so, you know, my sense is that, um, you know, Berlin was at war with himself mm. because he uh, he retained against other Cold War liberals that the the idea that romanticism had redefined, like really the whole point of life and therefore politics for everyone. But at the same time, he said it's dangerous to do so because it can lead to totalitarianism. And so which, which Berlin do we choose? That's going to be up to every, every person. But in a sense, like Schlar, Berlin was for Cold War liberalism and against it. Mm. Do you think that's what makes them, I guess, good thinkers on this, is that they've had different experiences with both sides of the arguments of things, or there's an evolution to their thought that they're able to kind of understand some of these things. You may not agree with them at certain points, but you can see the kind of mixture that is there. Do you think that's what makes them powerful thinkers or thinkers we should, you know, entertain or, or definitely read and study on these topics? Well, I definitely think we should read and study them. I mean, that's what I've done. And I, I think uh, it's a worthwhile activity. I, I would say, um, I think they're different cases because Schlar just changes her mind. Mm. I think she does so for the worse because the younger Schlar turns out to be, in a sense, a great critic of her later self. Mm. And then in Berlin's case, he just was ambivalent. Mm. And 
I, I think in the end you have to choose. And I feel terrible, I think, that Berlin, in a sense, his ambivalence has been missed and his readers have overwhelmingly understood him to be an advocate of Cold War liberals, liberalism without appreciating his devotion to romantic self-creation. Mm. And in a sense, that was his fault because he didn't choose and he left the impression that he was kind of like less complicated than he actually was. What if he'd been less complicated as an advocate of romantic creativity? Maybe he wouldn't have had as many Cold War fans, but he would have been true to himself and maybe, you know, opened up a different set of possibilities. Mm -hmm. So you also talk about uh, Popper, Karl Popper, and uh, you mentioned yeah. uh, historism. Uh, how is that helpful and his thought on this for understanding liberalism? Um, and you can bring in any of the other thoughts that he used. He also mentioned, you know, Hegel's use in as well. So how does, how does his view of getting this other construct, you know, we have the Enlightenment, we have Romanticism, now we have historism. How are these, his right. contribution here? Well, so when I talked earlier about the idea that history, though not, you know, about inevitable progress has to be seen as, you know, a, a setting in which, you know, more people can become more free. Um, you know, that, that view is, is something that Karl Popper, you know, really worried about to the point of rejecting it. And so, you know, he's turning on, an earlier legacy of liberalism out of concern that when you talk about progress, you're playing into the hands of the Soviet Union. Hmm. Now, he had some very good arguments against a form of what he called historicism, which is the idea that history proceeds by inevitable laws. But you don't have to believe that to believe that we need a story about how you know, humanity progresses from less freedom to more freedom. Mm. Uh, and so I fault him for, in a sense, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. Um, and I, I wonder if one reason why a lot of people are voting less and less for liberals, you know, or voting for liberalism's enemies in our day is that, you know, liberals don't have much to offer uh, to voters, mm. you know, they can say, like, if we yell at people and say, you know, save democracy, well, doesn't democracy have to offer them a bright future mm. for them to vote for mm -hmm. it? But liberals aren't doing that part. Mm. Uh, and so I wonder if that's a legacy of Cold War liberalism. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So you, you also talk about Hannah Arndt. Uh, Hannah Arndt is, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm very fond of her. I like her thought. She's a yeah. true independent uh, thinker. She yeah. pisses everyone off, totally. which is great. <laughs> uh, right. She had interesting views on liberalism uh, as well, which you, we, you can uh, discuss. If I remember correctly, there was a book um, that talked about the relationship between Hannah Arndt and Isaiah Berlin. It actually came out not that long ago. Yeah. Um, it's true. It's uh, it's uh, by Kai Hiruta. It's a very good. Yeah, book. I, I had started and I hadn't finished it, but I, I was going to ask you. Yep. I'm sure you maybe you've probably read it and you know know some of the claims there. But they also had a, a relationship as well. But what is her? 
ideas about liberalism. She has obviously an interesting story in her history and, you know, she's, you know, a type of, you know, refugee and bouncing around different places from Germany and then finally landed in the U.S. and has all these ideas about things. But what is her view kind of knowing her personal context of uh, liberalism and what it means? So she wasn't a liberal. She insisted mm-hmm. on that point many times, and therefore she's no Cold War liberal either. I mean, she's in a sense more interesting <laughs> than that. But, you know, what I try to show in the book is a couple of things. First, she overlapped with maybe you could say she was a fellow traveler of the Cold War liberals, mm-hmm. including Berlin. Uh, who Kai Haruta's book shows like hated her guts, just like absolutely despised her. Um, But the fact is they shared a lot. Um, You know, Arendt did not have the view that freedom is non-interference from the state that Berlin made famous in one of his essays. But, um, you know, she, she was very dubious about, the Enlightenment and Romanticism and historicism, like the Cold War liberals, and she worried that they were led to totalitarianism. Mm. And then I say, second, that she re- helps reveal something about the Cold War liberals, which is that you know they they were really Atlanticists. They they thought freedom should, in a sense, take refuge in the North Atlantic white countries. Mm. Uh, and they didn't have much of a plan for thinking about the universalization of freedom, you know, elsewhere. Now, earlier liberals uh, had 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 a plan, and it was called imperialism. So in a certain sense, there was a virtue in being some of the first post-imperial liberals. Mm. But, you know, these cold warriors seem and aren't also kind of was much more open about this, seemed to think that freedom really wasn't something that um, like people of color could enjoy. Mm. Now, Arendt put it by, who'd had some very troubling things to say about civil rights in the United States. Mm-hmm, she, mm-hmm. She, she put it by saying, well, look, you know, the global South is having these revolutions um, then they're sort of like the French Revolution. They're going to go dreadfully wrong. And poor people can't really have political freedom, but the global South is poor. So, you know, I think she helps us see a kind of like restriction of the the hopes of Cold War liberalism, which are being downgraded to the kind of the global North or, you know, the Atlantic zone, which... I think is not good enough. I mean, I think liberals should want to have a, an idea about how to make freedom global, just not the neoliberal globalization we've had lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I always wonder, I mean, this might sound bad in two ways. One, how much should we listen to Hannah Arndt about racial politics in the United States, number one? Yeah. And kind of on the other side of that is, you know, I mean, how much, again, is she going to know confidently about things, you know, if she's yeah. not from here and things, I mean, again, they're not great ideas, totally. <laughs> but yeah. I, I'm, I mean, you know, that's like if I were to go to Germany and try and talk about all of the different politics that they have with various ethnic groups, like, I, I don't know that. Yeah, totally fair. So totally fair. 
I, I'm 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 with you that we should take the good from thinkers and mm-hmm. you know reject the bad and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yet you know I I it's not like I'm just being like offering woke critique of Arendt you know because she <laughs> said unacceptable things <laughs> no, about black I, people I know. <laughs> first of all people have done that yeah, yeah. and and I guess I'm saying what what should we then use her mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. reveal about the Cold War liberals mm-hmm. who you know, we might otherwise not think hard about how they related to like the most liberatory events of their lifetime, which was the decolonization of the world, mm-hmm. uh, which they said nothing about. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's not at all that I want to like just be judgmental on Hannah Arendt for its own sake, because mm-hmm. as you say, there's a lot of good stuff in there. No, for sure. Now, again, we don't have to go far with this, but, you know, she also has very interesting up and down ideas about Zionism as well, which yeah. she, you know, again, gets her critics. <laughs> There's something for everybody to yeah. hate about her and something for everybody to love about her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I guess where does that kind of fit in as well? Because she ha- she's she's complex, right? She has these ideas about certain kinds of groups and certain ideas about freedom, but then she has a very kind of messy relationship with Zionism of sorts. How, how do you understand yeah. her this role here? Right. Well, she, I mean, in a way she's more controversial Mm -hmm. for having become a kind of critic of Zionism, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's really important that she was a devoted Zionist and, you know, um, advocate of arms struggle, um, in the 1930s and, and through World War II, most of it. And I guess what I want to say is that once again, that stance, which she held pretty briefly helps account for something, you know, troubling about the Cold War liberals because they actually were Zionists without giving it up. Mm. Um, Berlin is a great example. There's another man I talk about more briefly named Jacob Talmon, who is Israeli himself and one of the leading Cold War liberals. Mm. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that they, in the case of, of Israel, they, they back you know, armed struggle, violent revolution, national emancipation. Uh, so why then do those ideas, which actually come out of 19th century liberalism, um, why do they reject them everywhere else in the world, mm-hmm. especially for non-white peoples engaging in decolonization? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to reveal this, you know, contradiction mm-hmm. Uh, in their thought and and ask whether if if it's if it's real if I'm persuasive that it's real we ought to kind of think beyond their limitations. Mm. The I think it's the last chapter in the book. You talk about uh, trilling. Uh, yeah, and you talk about Freud. I'm fond of Freud, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, trilling liked him I think as well. And it seems like Cold War liberals oh, like Freud as well. Um, yeah. Not all, but many. Why? Well, so, you know, in my narrative, like I'm trying to show how the Cold War liberals edit out all the resources of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution and, you know, Hegel, even Karl Marx, um, which had all been kind of inspirations to liberals uh, before. And then they replace those sources with new ones. And one source I talk about is kind of a new, a new 
giving Augustinian Christianity a second look, because if you say people are fundamentally sinful, then they're unlikely to set their hopes too high in politics. Mm -hmm. And Trilling, the, this Columbia University literary critic, reads Freud in a similar spirit. He says, you know, Freud is basically saying we're monsters. You know, Trilling loved the part of, Tro of Freud that was that introduced the so-called death drive. Mm -hmm. Very mm -hmm. controversially, most psychoanalysts mm -hmm. rejected mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. move. Mm -hmm. But Trilling said it's the whole point of psychoanalysis mm -hmm. to reveal to ourselves how uh, you know, aggressive we are. And Trilling then concludes that it's kind of like secular sin. And why would you think that a monster would do good things in politics? Wouldn't you organize politics to guard against the aggressive, aggressive actor that humans turn out to be in Freud's analysis? I mean, I'll make a kind of a, an, an, an addition to that <clears throat> yes, you're right that many psychoanalysts, you know, would argue about the death instinct. My my understanding of this is that people pick on Freud for a lot of things, and he definitely deserves his criticism for sure. I mean, there's a lot of ideas that are yeah. just, you know, bunk. Yep. But there is such tremendous contribution to what he did for uh, Western thought, if you will, not even, you know, just for psychology, for philosophy, for social sciences. And many of the things Freud lived a good amount of years and he was engaging with his critics. Uh, he didn't always love it, but one of the things with the death instinct, so this is late Freud. So this is not early Freud, Oedipal complex, the whole thing. Death instinct was late Freud. And I, yeah. if, I'm, if I have this correctly, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. He really went back to the drawing board on his theory to say, you know, let, yeah. me, let me hear some of these criticisms. And you know what? Okay, let me retool some of this. And, yeah. you know, he thought about it a lot. And he said, okay, I think this death instinct makes a lot of sense. And, cool. you know, I'm quite fond of it. Um, I think I definitely know if I have colleagues that don't like it. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think it makes a lot of sense, and um, yeah. I, I think again, he it's it's coming out of this kind of let me let me respond to 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 critics in like a constructive way, and so it's interesting that that Trilling also likes this and uses this, yeah. and yeah. again, just to kind of to my first point, you know, Freud was such an impact culturally and socially uh, of the time, um, not just within you know, psychiatry or, or psychology later, but really for public thought, which I think is, in, in my view, I think it's important to moving uh, United States from a, you know, Puritan kind of mindset. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I'm not faulting Trilling mm -hmm. for liking Freud. Um, I do think what, what, in a sense, what's interesting about what Trilling does with Freud is, you know, that it, it, that Trilling's very creative mm, mm. in the way he turns to him, and like others at the very same time, um, were downloading Freud, including the Death Drive, in a very different spirit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, I try to contrast Trilling with, you know, the movement among people influenced by the Frankfurt School and other. Mm -hmm approaches to kind of, you know, think about 
the way in which um, aggression isn't take it or leave it, but is kind of historically constructed mm-hmm. and constituted. Mm-hmm. And that means we can imagine forms of society in which it has less play and more play. Mm. But once we start down that road, then we can't say the whole point of Freud is to keep us from dreaming big. The goal might have to be to dream big in order Mm -hmm. to imagine a society in which we live together with less aggression. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I I try to show that there are very understandable reasons, you know, why Trilling, you know, reached the kind of conservative liberal position he did. And that doesn't, that's no knock on Freud. It's, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of, it's illuminating about what Freud can mean to different people. Yeah. And what was uh, Scalar's view on Freud? She, she, she seemed to see him differently. She, she said not much about him, except that um, she, in one essay, as I report, she kind of said, we should take Freud in a very different spirit as a kind of historian of morality mm-hmm. and the way in which we can get caged in the kind of um, because of historical choices that are made. Mm. Um, and uh, like, that's why I think, you know, sh- she's kind of my guide in this book because she's suggesting maybe Freud is telling us sometimes about how we take wrong turns. Mm. And of course, I want to say that Cold War liberalism was a wrong turn. So, Where's the future of liberalism today? How do we how do we not do the same mistakes that Cold War liberals did? And um, I guess a little bit of that is, what do you make of this this view that sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm I'm classically liberal. I'm a 1960s liberal, right? <laughs> you hear this often, I'm sure. And you've written a book about why there was a lot of terrible aspects of that. So how do we understand where liberalism should be going? I guess. Well, you know, there. This is a political intervention, and of course, there are going to be a lot of like, you know, debates. You know, I'm not under the illusion that those ever get settled, but mm-hmm. you know, certain certain approaches gain traction in some periods, and you know, maybe we could imagine a period in which Cold War liberalism is uh, less convincing to people and other things, more reformist or utopian liberalisms are more convincing to people. And, you know, the book's just trying to bring about that scenario. Um, I don't like, I can make two kinds of arguments to people who want to kind of embrace Cold War liberalism. One is like internal, that uh, you say you're trying to avoid threats, but if that's true, why do you keep producing them? Mm. You know, maybe you'd have to transcend Cold War liberalism in order to achieve your own goals. Mm. And then there's a more external view. I just want to present how contestable it was to redefine liberalism in this way. You'd still have to have an argument for like what kind of liberal to be, whether you should go back totally to the 19th century, which I don't think. Mm -hmm or just get some better stuff from the 19th century and create a new kind of liberalism we've never seen. Mm. Uh, and that's going to require a lot more books. <laughs> this one's a little book mm-hmm. and it's just raising the possibility that a mistake was made and there's something better out there for us. Mm. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's important. And I think that there's, there's ways in which we need people that are embracing a lot of those ideals. We shouldn't turn away from them 
Um, you know, but I think we, we, it's interesting because each period of time presents itself with this unique challenges. And as I've said throughout the conversation that sometimes people are always a product of their time. So what does liberalism in a 21st century in a digital and technological age, you know, what does that look like? And for me, the reason why I maintain my liberalism (laughs) is I think that in general, when we're compared to, you know, conservatives or, or other folks is liberals, liberals have, I think the, the space and the potential for moving forward and pushing and creating ideas in innovative ways. I see less of that with other parties and other groups. It's a lot of, let's just stay the same. Let's not change too fast. And that's fine. I mean, there's an element of some of that, but it really does seem like liberals, at least historically, are the, the party or are, are the group that have really pushed for how do we innovate? How do we keep finding uh, new solutions to things? How do we keep you know, creating? Um, and I think that that's, that's super important. I'm with you. I mean, I, I think uh, like this is a call to redeem liberalism and mm. to give it a last chance mm. when a lot of people want to ditch yeah. it. And, you know, it's sad to me that at least some of the pushback at the book kind of begins with the premise that if you like have some criticisms of liberalism, you must want to ditch it. Whereas it's just the reverse. I mean, we, we can only save things we change Mm -hmm. uh, and liberalism might be one. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I, I, I'm very, um, allergic to people saying any criticism of something is like, you know, it's like a, it's like the, the ultimate taboo. It's like, no. Circling the wagon. Yeah. But, you, you, know, you should maybe, criticize maybe it. Maybe things have to change too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, full, I fully agree with you. The book is called uh, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Um, where's the best places to find you or anywhere you want to point people uh, in particular? Um. I'm around. I mean, I, you know, uh, the books widely available at the usual, you know, sites and I'm on Twitter and other, you know, social media and Twitter. My handle is at Samuel Moyne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Sam, this was, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you, uh, coming on and, and talking about the book and, and really, uh, expounding all these ideas. I, uh, I really, really, uh, I enjoy the book and I enjoy the conversation. So it's a, uh, it's a big honor to have you come in and talk about it. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for reading. Absolutely. It.